0: Right, uh, good evening everybody, welcome to the LSE, um, I'm Simon Glendinning and I'm the Director of the Forum for European Philosophy and I'm delighted to welcome you to this first in a series of <coughs> new events um, called European Questions, Turkish Angles. This this series of events, of, the, of which this is just the first, is uh, held under the aegis of the Chair in Contemporary Turkish Studies here at the LSE and the aim is to bring together thinkers with an interesting questions on bearing on contemporary European identity and to explore how a chosen theme within that kind of area could be illuminated in a new way by taking in points of view from and issues arising with respect to Turkey. So we begin always with something which, not necessarily well understood already, but perhaps in which within Europe there's already a, uh, a theme or a, a problematic field which has been well developed and for which we have fairly secure methods and ways of approaching the topic, as it were, from within Europe, whatever that is. And today's... Theme, as I say, is Europe's history <coughs> and the format of the discussion will be that each contributor will have an opportunity to make a brief 10 minute or so introduction, opening remarks, which will be followed by a second round, a slightly shorter round, where they will be given an opportunity to respond to their fellow contributors. And that should leave us about half an hour at the end for <coughs> questions and contributions from you. Now, there's a slight change in the lineup from the advertised uh, uh, lineup of um, speakers because uh, Stephen Hallgate, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Warwick, suffered a bereavement this weekend, so was unable to come. And I'm extremely grateful to Peter Osborne to step in at the last minute to give a A voice from philosophy. Thank you, Peter. I'll introduce the others first, though. Um, In the middle there is uh, Professor Donald Sassoon, who's Professor of Comparative European History at Queen Mary University of London. And uh, he's written an awful lot and a lot of very long books, (laughs) by the look of it. Um, But the one I'm going to draw attention to now is one called The Culture of the Europeans, which itself is 1,600-odd pages long divided into 62 chapters, um, (laughs) but has been described not only as unique and encyclopedic, but uh, the book on uh, the European study of the culture of the Europeans. Sitting on his left is Peter Osborne, who's Professor of Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University. His main interests are around Kant, Hegel and Marx and first generation of uh, critical theory, but he's also interested specifically in the philosophy of history. And that brings me to one distinction that pr- perhaps will float around and w- might be wa- worth uh, making at this point, a distinction between Europe's history understood, as Hegel might put it, as the history of what actually happened. uh, um, independently of what we like to tell ourselves about that history (laughs) and on the other hand, Europe's history which would be the history it tells itself its own self-understanding of its uh, historical trajectories Um, Peter's written a book on the politics of time, on modernity and the idea of modernity as a qualitative, not a chronological category And then sitting just to my left is Professor Shevket Pamuk, uh, who is the Chair of Contemporary Turkish Studies at the European Institute at London School of Economics. And it's with him that we've organised these events on European questions, Turkish angles. He's the author of The Ottoman Empire and European Capitalism between 1820 and 1913. So suggesting that Shevket himself is already interested in this interplay between... Turkish history Turkish angles and Europe's history. So as I say each one's going to get a 10 minute shot first before they're interrupted by their colleagues and uh, we're going to go in a certain order although it's not it's not an X Factor, no particular order. Donald um, <laughs> Sassoon who's uh, Nobody should be taken as representing anything particular, but Donald Sassoon, as it were, with the voice of the historian, will go first, talking about Europe's history. Um, Peter Osborne, representing, but not representing. Philosophy will talk about the way in which Europe's history has been understood inside philosophy. And then Pet will uh, bring in the Turkish angle uh, at, at the end. So they have ten minutes each first and then after that we'll go back and start again giving them five minutes further to respond to their panellists <laughs> and by then we should uh, reach a time suitable for opening it up to your questions <coughs> and contributions. So I'm going to stay sitting here to watch the clock a little bit but I'm hopefully going to be rather light on that but Donald, uh, if you'd like to go first on Europe's history. Since I represent history, my God, and only
1: ten minutes <laughs> <laughs> um, the the continent is so unbelievably difficult to define since it has no real uh, boundaries even by the standard of geography certainly like Africa or to some extent the Americas and the definition of who is in and who is out has been a characteristic of European history at least since the last three or four hundred years although the, the Greeks or just also was making distinctions between them and us, us being the European. Slavoj Žižek likes to mention the fact uh, that uh, over the last 100 or 150 years, um, what we've had are the uh, Russians explaining that there are Europeans because they stand, they defend Europe from the Asian hordes, the Poles, of course, defend Europe from the... Russian hordes. Uh, the Germans are there to keep the Slavic hordes at bay. The um, of course the uh, Greeks and the Bulgarians uh, keep uh, Europe safe for Christianity. Um, the uh, Slovenians uh, uh, and the Croatians for Catholicism against Greek Orthodox uh, Byzantine nonsense. The Spanish keep the Africans away, so everybody is in Europe and is keeping someone on the other side, except by the way the British, I mean they don't particularly, <laughs> <laughs> they never thought, you know, we are defending Europe from modern they are uninterested. But what is striking is how new, how recent uh, is uh, the European state system since Europe is w- one of the many peculiarities of Europe is that there is no such a thing as there has never been a, a single conqueror of the whole of Europe. Europe has never been <coughs> run as a single um, European em- empire, but not, not by the Romans, not, not by the, uh, the, the later Roman Empire, not Napoleon, not Hitler, none of these things. There's never been a full control. Over all of it, and uh, the states which make up Europe and the present state system is is actually quite recent, quite new. Um, Unlike, for instance, that of Latin America, which is much older than the European one, if one were to take a date at random, 1880, it's not quite a random, but you know what I mean, um, and you look at the number of states in Europe, there are about 20, and one can always argue about within and out, but say roughly. 20 states. If you look at the number of states now, um, there are well over 40, 27 in <coughs> the European Union, another 15, and if you want to put Georgia, Armenia, and so on, I mean the, the numbers would then um, go up. I don't, ha- I don't have have But the number numbers of states have actually, has actually doubled. Um, Italy will uh, celebrate its 150th anniversary. Next year, um, actually, the boundaries of 1861 are not really at all the final boundaries of of Italy. The existing Italian boundaries are those obtained in 1919, uh, once the, uh, the northern part was incorporated in uh, in uh, in Italy. Um, Germany, 1870, and again uh, two German states, and then uh, unification uh, later. Um, it is not quite clear either um, where Poland is, and this is one of the most um, overt manifestations of uh, nationalism in Europe, a very strong sense of it, usually inversely proportional to the security and the, um, uh, the, the clarity of the boundaries of Poland, which have been shifting all over the place for a very long, a very long time. Um, if you take France, which is one of the few states which existed uh, before um, the 19th century, if one were to go, to go back, there was a French state before the 19th century, but the borders of this French state have also changed uh, completely. Just one small example, um, not only, of course, Corsica uh, was not in France until just a year before the birth of Na- Napoleon, you can imagine. What would have happened to Europe if Napoleon had been an Italian general instead of a <laughs> French in general? Uh, but the um, boundaries of um, France were uh, were modified uh, again uh, um, once they obtained Nice from the Kingdom of Savoy. Most of the French Riviera would really was part of Savoy. Things had gone slightly differently. Instead of the Bears, you would have had the Zupa di pesce. Probably exactly <coughs> the same sort of thing in the in the region of uh, of uh, Nice. Um, if Schopenhauer had been back, he uh, would have been amazed uh, that the German city in which he was born is actually in Poland. Uh, Kant would have been amazed that Königsberg is Kaliningrad, because uh, that's what it is now. And he would be regarded, not sure, as a Russian uh, philosopher perhaps and we can we can go on we can actually map out even countries which seem to us pretty solid pretty stable like uh, the Scandinavian countries I mean even there uh, there have been uh, recent changes Iceland becomes fully independent uh, only in the second half of the 20th century um, Norway um, independent before but becomes uh, um, Um, Totally totally sovereign state uh, uh, much later at the beginning of the the 19th century. Uh, So this is not a continent uh, whose state system stretches back from centuries, even though virtually every single nationalist uh, party in uh, Europe says exactly the the opposite. So in this sense, I'd be curious to then investigate the, the issue uh, with Turkey, since Turkey, too, is a fairly recent uh, recent state. Um, let me add one more thing. The multiplication of states in Europe is due principally to the collapse of empires. Um, the collapse of the austro hungarian Empire, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire over a number of years, and the collapse of the Tsarist-Soviet Empire uh, until, uh, recently. So It's a fairly long, uh, long process of um, state formation. Con- uh, against uh, this uh, massive dis- disintegration, we have had, uh, only recently, uh, the uh, European Union, which on the whole has been uh, little more than a common market uh, uh, among the number, a limited number of European, uh, European states. Um, it, has been, it has proved almost impossible to uh, establish uh, major common policies in things that really matter which is usually tax and spend policy, mainly fiscal unity, there's no way in which they move towards any kind of fiscal union um, you no know, tax agreement of uh, the most basic ones and obviously um, very, um, virtually no um, common welfare policies so this is a continent which is disunited, which is fairly new, and which contrasts massively with uh, other places, in particular, I mentioned it before, uh, the Americas, the so-called new continent, uh, actually has far more stable Boundaries uh, in its state system than uh, the European one. I mean, if you look at the formation of Latin American countries, uh, they're more or less by 1880, they're all there in in the trade now, and even in 1820, 1830, we have more or less uh, the (coughs) division we have now, even though they speak the same language, two languages Spanish and Portuguese. most of them are dominated uh, by the descendants of people who came from the same part of the world. Uh, in other words, uh, they do not exhibit, and perhaps because they do not exhibit uh, um, any kind of uh, local nationalism which can hark to some kind of common ethnicity. Um, the oldest state, of course, in the new continent is the United States of America, which after the Civil War um, more or less settled. Uh, in its present state. The boundaries of the United States uh, have remained uh, fixed uh, since uh, the day after the civil war. No attempted secession, um, I say almost, uh, because I'm only too conscious that Hawaii was brought in at a much later stage, as well as Alaska, which is why we have Sarah Palin to uh, (laughs) to entertain us uh, uh, in our evening or scare us. So it remains a mystery, if I can conclude by going back to the to the the first thing. But nevertheless, uh, in spite of all these uh, problems, uh, which is one of the main reasons why Europe has lost the preeminence it appeared to have briefly between 1750 and 1914, uh, why is it uh, that uh, this uh, continent is still, for those who seem or appear to be just outside it, uh, it has the image of modernity, civility, progress, it has all these, as it were, good connotations, so that we do not have a single instance, perhaps I'm wrong, but i like to know, we do not have a single instance of a country which says, actually, we're not European, we are Asian, or we are <coughs> African. Um, this is a kind of bizarre club, which
0: everybody wants to join, no one wants to leave, and everybody else wants to be. Thank you, Donald. Okay, and we're going to move straight on. Uh, Peter, you're going to pick this up from what people tend to say in philosophy about Europe's history.
2: Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have the poison chalice here, which is the uh, philosophical representations of Europe, so I'm going to slide the... uh, deflected slightly, although I would be interested to know what uh, Stephen Hulgate would have said had he been here. Being an orthodox Hegelian, it's very hard to be an orthodox Hegelian about Europe today, so having covered this at extremely short notice, the one thing I have managed to do is check the references to Turkey in Hegel's philosophy, of lectures uh, on the philosophy of world history, uh, and I will entertain you with some of those later, but uh, I won't be attempting to defend the Hegelian uh, conception of Europe. In a way, I think uh, post kantian European philosophy, it's questionable whether it has anything to contribute to current debates about the concept of Europe. Or to put that in a, a more positive light, it's possible that it's only a way of contributing is negatively Um, and there are there are two main reasons for this the first is to do with the it's not so much to do with the concept of history sorry the concept of europe as the concept of history and the uh the constitution of the philosophical concept of history as a whole history in the collective singular world history from the perspective of late 18th century Europe. Uh, And that constitution, um, in a way, infects the philosophical discourse of history in general in such a way that it's quite hard to (coughs) redeem anything like a philosophical concept of Europe from within that concept of history. Uh, One of the main ways, in a way, that post-Canton European philosophy distinguishes itself as a philosophical tradition from the forms of European philosophy which preceded Kant, on the one hand, and from the the so-called analytical philosophical tradition that liked to think of itself uh, as coming afterwards, is through its articulation of a philosophical concept of history. And in many ways the uh, the credibility of a post-Kantian metaphysical philosophical tradition resides in the credibility or the possibilities of hanging on to the concept of history. Uh, I assume, by the way, here, and I suppose I put this as a question to my colleague on my right, Um, I assume that to maintain the concept of history in the collective singular is to have a philosophical concept of history. I also assume that to not have a concept of history in the collective singular is in some quite deep sense to not have a concept of history. So I'm quite interested as to what historians might make of that. The the problem is the legacy of the mainstream European philosophical traditions, concept of history. Uh, Its enduring interest, I think, derives from the fact that it's constituted at a world historical level. It's not constituted at a, at a European level. The problem is that it's constituted at a world historical level via the mediation of Europe. Uh, and the question is really whether that's a fatal uh, situation or something that can be got over. So if you if one looks at the 150 years of philosophical history that run from Kant via Hegel and Nietzsche up to uh, Searle and Heidegger, which is, if you like, the mainstream of the post kantian European philosophical tradition. You find this this tradition uh, structured in common by uh, a series of uh, familiar reductions or conflations some of which are more culturally uh, and politically familiar, and one of which uh, is less so. And essentially, uh, I think this tradition, this post-Kantian philosophical European philosophical tradition of thinking history is unified up until the, uh, the Second World War, from Kant to the Second World War, by a reductive identification of four categories. These are the categories of European history, Western history, Christian history, and the history uh, of philosophy. Uh, And in many ways, it's it's the last one, which is the peculiarity. The identification of Europe, the Western Christianity is, uh, in a way, too much of a uh, cultural banality to, historically speaking... To render this tradition intellectually distinctive. It's in some sense the recoding of that uh, notorious historical conflation via the history of philosophy, um, which is which is distinctive. Of course, in its its worst and passing moments, the Europe within this fourfold conflation is itself reduced to Germany in some instances. Um, So it becomes even even more problematic, or some relationship between Germany and a strange neo-pagan version of uh, pre-Socratic Greek life. Um, now, in, in relation to these, in relation to these four categories, of course, it's the category of the West in many ways which is the most readily destroyed and has been, uh, like, intellectually over the last thirty or forty years as a purely ideological. Construct in so far as it projects a kind of phantasmatic and incoherent geography uh, out of uh, economic data, such that actually it doesn't really matter where in the world you happen to be located geographically to belong to the West, because the West is a geographical category. It's a, it's a geopolitical category, and that uh, that geopolitical overdetermination of geographical categories in many ways has its origins. In the philosophy of history, and in the, uh, if you like, the, I don't want to say the Eurocentrism, but the, um, the Euro <coughs> perspectivalism of, uh, of these philosophical histories. Uh, what, what's most philosophically distinctive about the conflation, however, uh, is not this Europe, the West, and Christianity being identified but the identification of history in the collective singular with the history of philosophy. Now, I mean, we associate this with with Hegel, um, but in a way it appears in a much more simplistic uh, and uh, hence uh, more readily visible term in Thinkers Like Castell and Heidegger, possibly in her Searle, in whose uh, Crisis of the European (coughs) Sciences we we famously (coughs) find in section three of of the first part. The title of the section is the founding of the autonomy of European humanity through the new formulation of the idea of philosophy in the Renaissance, and it's fairly amazing that philosophers in the 1930s could still be writing a history in which European humanity could be founded by a philosophical idea. I think the, um, the idealism of that conception is, is one of the main things which, if you like, discredited philosophical history. Uh, theoretically along with um, the previously mentioned German problem Um, but at least in Hegel as opposed to in the Searle we have a conception of philosophy itself as its own time comprehended in thought so we at least have some kind of dialectical tension between the philosophical uh, and the historical aspects The reason, I think, uh, for this, in many many ways, startling reduction of history to the philosophy of history and the philosophy of history to the history of philosophy, which are the two essential modes through which the philosophy of history got going in the 19th century, is really to do with the question uh, of how to uh, establish conceptual unity in the uh, the notion of history, uh, because it's the reductive identification of the history of philosophy with the philosophy of history that allowed Hegel to present history as the self-development of reason, and which then, in some ways, allowed Marx to present history in, as a narrative of the imminent development of the forces of production in their relations to the relations of production, so that that the uh, the narrative unity, insofar as unity is to be construed in a narrative mode, requires some kind of categorical reduction. In Hegel to reason, uh, in Marx to need, but the uh, the operation of reduction, whether it be to reason or to need, is essentially uh, is essentially similar. If we look at uh, Hegel's uh, lectures on the philosophy of world history in relation to Turkey, although I know that I luckily don't have to say anything specific about Turkey, Uh, but since Hegel did, it's quite interesting to see, if you like, uh, quite the extent to which Hegel marginalises Turkey. Um, We find find conventional uh, (coughs) deluggety remarks primarily of uh, to do with the abstractness of the uh, non-Christian concept of religion on the one hand and the authoritarian character uh, of, its in, uh, of its relation to indigenous cultures and its imperial project on the other. But the thing in a way which, which remains alive in a strange way is Hegel's final uh, remark about Turkey which is in relation to the Near East in which is comparing Europe's relation to North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, and in a way, it's not so dissimilar to uh, the way that uh, a lot of progressive rather than reactionary European politicians talk about these relations now, and particularly in the French context, those who like Etienne Balabar would like to, if you like, construct an alternative Mediterranean uh, geopolitics of Europe. Uh, Where Hegel... Uh, argues that North Africa and the Near East are oriented towards Europe and should and must be brought into the European sphere of influence. And in many ways, uh, we find ourselves in a peculiar position, so far as most of those arguing for um, the entry of Turkey into the European Union do so on the basis of a political perspective which has a, if you like, a political history which is the opposite of the the left position that they, they currently adopt. Uh, and that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting tension. Um, how much longer have I got?
0: Um
2: Okay I think I'll just I'll just make my one one final point by by reiterating my main point. Mainly as a, as a question to the historians and specifically to, to Donald, uh, which is to do with the question of unity. Insofar as the philosophy of history as a uh, theoretical discourse about history retains any traction, it does so uh, in its insistence on the need to think the unity of the concept of history. And, in particular, to think the unity of any uh, lower-level geopolitical historical concepts like Europe only within the terms of the unity of the concept of history. Uh, and the problem, I think, uh, of the uh, like the theoretical dimension of the debates about Europe that uh, accompany a lot of the debates about European citizenship and, for me, much worse idea, European identity, which is a, Terrifying idea. I um, mean, no, not as opposed to a national identity, but just as, a, as an identity concept. I think one needs to be as nihilistic about Europe as one is about nations. Uh, but in a way, maybe it's too early to be nihilistic about Europe, but maybe not. <laughs> and the question therefore, if you like, is on what possible basis, other than a, uh, if you like, a simple realist uh, discourse regarding the technically optimal spread of the euro as a currency, uh, what is the other possible theoretical basis for thinking something as fantastic as the euro?
3: OK, thank
4: <laughs> okay. you. Right, Seppiet. So, yeah. Well, let me begin by uh, <coughs> s- stating which particular Turkish angle I would like to bring into this debate. Um, we all know that history involves constant interaction between the present and the future and the past. People with different beliefs and convictions about the present and the future make different uses of history and create different histories. Not surprisingly, as it's been mentioned, debates about the present and future of Europe, more specifically about the European Union, make use of European history, and often involve Turkey. And of course, Turks and Turkey today are interested in how they are viewed and used in these debates on Europe and European history. (coughs) I would like to begin today by focusing on those histories and those debates. We all see ourselves as individuals but also parts of groups which make up our (coughs) identity. And this is precisely where history comes in as history goes in many ways towards defining our identities. Benedict Anderson coined the term imagined communities. In in many ways, we are all identifying ourselves as part of one or more of those imagined communities. And history has a way of enforcing those imagined communities. Relatedly, the other is always used in history to create identities, and we identify ours, <coughs> ourselves as we identify the other. And today, in these debates, history, as much as geography and border, borders, are being used to define identities that distinguish us from the other other. And in Europe today, history and geography is being used mostly, but I would say not exclusively, for arguments against Turkey's place in Europe. Mostly, but not exclusively. But at the same time, the connectedness and interaction is all, always there between us and the other. All civilizations interact and learn (coughs) from each other. In fact, history is a series of interactions and common vocabularies. History is as much about conflict as about alliances. The us and the other. Are always interacting and shaping each other. I would say this is true uh, about history not only in Europe but certainly also in history in Turkey as well. Turkey today. Turkey today. But one point I want to mention ma- emphasize and this I think takes us to the distinction Simon made at the beginning. Uh, uh, We really in as we may be all writing different histories, but we cannot really ignore the contribution of the other in history. And uh, since I'm an economic historian, I want to just present a few examples from economic history. The Industrial Revolution, as we you all know, is one of the most important events in economic history, and more generally in history, period. This is an event that took place first in this country and paved the way for modern economic growth and increases in standards of living over the last 200 years, all across the globe. Until recently, say, until the 1970s, the economic history of the Industrial Revolution referred only to events and achievements that occurred in a single country, in a nation-state. The heroes and the achievements all belong to Britain. More recently, however, there is a growing recognition that in fact not only the ideas, but the people kept moving and learning from each other across a very larger, much larger European (laughs) space. The ideas, institutions, and technological achievements of the Industrial Revolution actually developed and matured thanks to this centuries-long interaction and interconnectedness. Now, in retrospect, there is no doubt this growing recognition of the European space, say over the last three decades, was due to the emergence of the European Union, and there you see clearly the interaction between the present and the past, between the present and, and, and history. Even more recently, there is yet another recognition in the historiographies of the Industrial Revolution. And this growing strand has been arguing About the contribution of the non-European world and especially about the contribution of Asia to the Industrial Revolution in terms, not only in terms of (coughs) trade and markets, but also in terms of institutions, in terms of technical knowledge, supply of some consumer goods, even most recently about the competitiveness of Indian cotton textiles industry and its effects and the pressures it put on British cotton textiles. I would submit that this is again part of a broader uh, movement as we began to live in the era of globalization that we are becoming more aware and we are Now, if we go back to the interaction between the Ottoman Empire and Europe, I could uh, give you many examples from history. Rodel's two-volume work on the Mediterranean is, in fact, full of interaction across the Mediterranean. That this is this is the main contribution that Rodel is making. That the Mediterranean in the early modern era was a world of interaction and shared vocabularies between the West and the East, and the Ottomans were in, were very much part of early modern Europe. in conflict as much as in alliances. From the Ottoman side, I could mention that, uh, for example, Mehmed II, the sultan who captured Constantinople in the mid-15th century, thought of himself Mm -hmm. not really as a sultan of of an Islamic empire, but rather as the Caesar of Eastern Rome. Recently, Lucette Valenci and others have studied in great detail how the first European state to come into permanent contact with the Ottomans, namely the Venetians, how, how the Venetians define themselves and their political system not in isolation, but in contrast to that of the Ottomans. How their civilization and identity were shaped by their interaction with the Ottomans and their depiction of the Ottomans. And of course what they called Ottoman despotism was shaped in interaction with the and in contrast to the Venetian Ottoman system and through that the Venetians define themselves and their own civilization coming closer um, one I could underline that until the last part of the 19th century, this large entity, the Ottoman Empire, in fact, covered a very large part of Europe, Southeastern Europe, and the Ottoman Empire was part of that European interstate system. In mid-19th century, after the Crimean War, the Ottoman Empire was formally accepted as part of this uh, interstate system called the concept of Europe. Of course, the Ottoman un- Empire and Turkey are not alone in their frequent exclusion from European identities. In fact, often in the histories of Europe, and as we go back to the idea of Europe, and the identities of Europe, we find that European unity was conceived on the basis of the exclusion not of only of the Muslim world, the Ottoman Empire, but also of Jews, and e- until more recently of Orthodox Christians, heretics, and many <coughs> other marginal groups. <coughs> to come back to this distinction, I would argue that uh, write histories that exclude, but that such an exclusion comes at a cost, comes at the cost of suppressing certain kinds of evidence, and really at the cost of perhaps misunderstanding that history. And I'll stop here. Okay, thank you, all three of you. I
0: wonder if, uh, if I dare push you, Donald, to take up a bit of a challenge from Peter about um, the idea of the history of the world, which uh, derives from a particular philosophical conception of history. So rather than just thinking of there's a history of a region, Europe, as one place amongst others on a global surface, that we have to understand that region, regional development in terms of a much grander history of what what Peter called the collective singular where the imagined community is the we is we human beings, it's the, the whole history of humanity and how far has Europe's history been caught up with that kind of projected imagined community beyond itself, so that Europe's history is in some ways inextricably caught up in a kind of philosophical self-understanding?
1: Well, let me let me try to not answer the question from <laughs> um, by saying that these kind of questions are really philosophical questions, <laughs> and therefore not really from historians <laughs> at all. Um, now, this is not a way of I mean, I'm trying to make a serious point here. It is Similar to someone going to a scientist and asking the scientist who's making experiments on chemistry or physics or something, what what are, is his concept of science? And he will probably say, well, he doesn't try to give an answer, which would be, analysis, but be a and not terribly interesting one. Um, <laughs> and uh, he will then say, well, you know, was, he never thought about it. Um, it is just a matter of that most of the people we train to become historians, and we got the fullest idea of what on earth is the definition of history, are actually having to teach a course of historical methodology, and we have a lot of fun. I do this to first years, and the main reason is to destroy whatever they have learned at school <laughs> uh, in order to you know, build up on, on, on there. And the first thing is to confuse them by explaining how problematic uh, the idea of history is. Um, But this is fairly unusual on the whole. We do not have to give a definition of (coughs) our subject. It's interesting that in the social sciences this is not the case. In uh, many courses or degrees in sociology and so on, nearly the first year is spent asking what on earth is this? What (laughs) is sociology? What is political science? What is international relations? What is this? But historians just like people who are in the humanities, English lit, just go through and do not need. I think actually they do not need to have a concept or a philosophical basis, a definition of what the subject is, in order in order to uh, do it. The second point is that of the boundaries. Can you know? There are lots of books which are the history of Turkey, history of this, history of that. And then as this history is written uh, and challenged uh, constantly, one points out to things which are not only within the boundaries of Turkey. Um, and um, one brings in, as it were, factors from outside. It is uh, almost inconceivable that a historian would not do that. There is, I cannot think of a history which is, not, which is self-contained. It is pretty, it would be quite absurd um, I you mean, know, totally exposed to the ideological history. I have not come. Ac- I've come across a lot of bad histories, uh, but all of them um, recognize that the development of uh, what they call the history of X uh, is due to also external factors So the problem is, you know, how far do you go in embracing it? Well, this is another question which is better to um, to avoid um, <laughs> by by trying to show that you know, it's, it's not necessarily terribly useful. Um, think, of the, think of the chronological history, the conventional chronological history of a particular country or a particular <coughs> region. One sort of goes back uh, and lists the things which are important uh, and eliminate the things which are not important. The things which are important are things which cause something or other, which is regarded as being particularly s- significant. Uh, and uh, there, there is a cut-off point where, quite clearly, um, one wishes to start at a particular juncture and not having to go back uh, to a period which it is, we don't have the resources, we don't have the knowledge, uh, we will never get uh, to discuss. Uh, the origin of the EU. If every time we had to try to think, you know, let's put this in a proper chronological uh, order and start uh, with ancient Rome and ancient and ancient Greece. Although there's probably some kind of vague uh, connection there. So similarly, a uh, history of the world uh, um, would w- one would need to take some relational factors, uh, put these together, and try to trace. The history of these relational factors as being particularly global, and so we do have histories like, mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. and to some extent people like the uh, Vier- school tried to find factors which are, were not political which were not immediately determined by political events, and tried to map them over very long uh, long term um, and in that sense they were you know they were achieving something but at the cost which they even gloried in of eliminating or not discussing what they call conjunctural history trivial events such as the first and the second world war and stuff like that and certainly the European Union would be regarded as a as, a, as, an, as an absurd uh, uh, conjunctural event when it, whereas the real history would be the history of trading relations in Europe at least in the medieval period and then looking at it and looking at the Connection with state boundaries and how these were broken or, or were not in existence and, and
0: so on. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm going to uh, throw that back a bit to you, Peter, in the, in the thought that uh, our idea of Europe's history now can utterly do without these sort of ridiculous, ambitious attempts at universal mm-hmm. history that the 18th and 19th century philosophers thought was possible. And, and indeed, One of the things that I don't know if you're going to read out a bit more of Hegel, but might it be that the kinds of things that those thinkers were saying about places outside Europe were in a way dependent upon this kind of hugely fantastic conception of of world history? Or throwing it back, would you throw it back to Donald and suggest that there's still some place for a kind of philosophical investigation.
2: Yeah, no, uh, you must point to me, actually, I never said anything about the history of the world.
0: Right. Well, it's the name of the book. <coughs> world history.
2: Well, world history is the standpoint from which you write any history. It's not the uh, single narratable story of everything. It's, uh, it's to do with the like, the constitution of your perspective on any historical event. So it's not uh, the question of a narrative history of the world is not at stake. Um, I mean, that was the problem for early nineteenth-century philosophies of history, uh, and their problem was the relative ignorance of the world. Right? So that kind of history goes out of date pretty much immediately. I mean, actually, at the time they they weren't you know so bad relative to the knowledge of their day, but within about twenty years they were completely you know. Um, so it's, it's not about narrative knowledge of histories of the world. It's about how you constitute the category of history. And while I can <coughs> understand that those concerned solely with a kind of professional uh, credentialization can follow the practices of professional story, um, it's not clear to me that you can, you can intellectually appropriate the concept of history without some reflective relation to, the, to its basic categories. Um, and in particular, because the categories through which histories, particularly contemporary histories, tend to be written, tend to be simply taken uh, from existing political discourses uh, according to various pragmatic conveniences. So for example, any uh, history that includes the category of European identity, the question might be... Well, uh, why and at uh, what point, well, why should, why is the category of European identity the category of a possible history? Right? Because I think, I think it's pretty clear from the narrative that you gave at the beginning. P- uh, the first question is, is why? Why choose it? And so the answer is for uh, pragmatic reasons of uh, passing political uh, use. Because if, if I follow your you know if, if you follow your initial history of the changing boundaries of Europe and, and the uh, remarks that followed uh, about Turkey, it's pretty clear that European identity is only really theorizable via uh, a kind of non-dialectical double, double negation. Right? European identity. <laughs> European identity. to have an identity which is not that of a non-European. That seems to be about all that can be said, theoretically, because because
1: the empirical content (laughs)
2: changes. Yes, but a historian
1: historian uh, who were to say, I want to write a history of European identity, is not actually someone who proposes uh, a definition of European identity. Uh, That is someone, uh, that particular historian, is someone who tries to trace the way in which the word, the concept, the idea of European identity has been used throughout the centuries, to be so long or um, or um, go
2: know, for that's past past there's, 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 there's two possible histories. There. There's an intellectual history of the concept of European identity, and there's the claim that there is actually something out there. Corresponding to the idea of European identity. Yes. Can,
0: can I just can I intervene here for, for a moment? I mean, the, the interesting idea that dialectical double negation—the the, non—non—non—non-European, <laughs> 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 non- yeah. not non-European.
5: Uh, and that—that that is a, 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 a
0: abstract. Well, you, uh, it, it it connects to what Shephard was talking about: these histories being told with the excluded other. But um, the challenge to you, Shevke, from the historian next to you, would be that, in fact, no history really practices these exclusions very thoroughly. When any, anybody wants to tell a history of a the space, they're always going to look out to see what influences there were from beyond it. And so these, um, I wonder if um, the charge, as it were, to European history, that it, that it overlooked these other influences, was something actually that it was always embracing.
4: Well, um, I, I I think it, we are talking really about a mixture, but I submit that for a long time his, say, 19th, especially in the 20th century, history has been written around the concept of the nation state mm-hmm. and uh, Obviously, nation states were in interaction with each other, and these national historiographies do not deny the interaction. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but all a lot many of those histories has been right, focusing on us, on our nation state, right, and trying to, tending to play down the contribution of let's say, neighbors and, and, and others. So, I would say in that sense, there is, we have all across Europe for a long, long time, selective in histories focusing on us, say the French and the German and the Greek and the Turkish and the Bulgarian there have been very different histories you might say that's not a very intelligent thing to do, or whatever. But this was in fact the case, and uh, I would again underline how much, in fact, history is influenced by the present, um, in, and and the and the present mindset that. Uh, in the day of, in the era of European Union, Europeanization, we write different histories. In the age of globalization, we write different histories. In the age of the nation state, we really write different histories. Yes, there are interactions, but I think the histories and and the the importance of outside influences and so on are very different. <coughs> Again. Let me give you another example from my uh, field, economic history. Until recently, there was no single thematic economic history of modern Europe. (coughs) Economic history of of Europe was conceived and written until, very recently, as the histories, the aggregation of national histories. I am proud to be involved in a Cambridge University Press uh, project to write (coughs) European economic history in themes but taking the, the entire Europe as the unit of analysis and not making Europe as the summation of British economic history, French economic history, Austrian economic history. That's very, very recent. And again, I submit this is because of the gaining popularity of the idea of, Euro- of a European Union as a as a single space that now these kinds of histories are, are written. Now let me then bring the perhaps the focus even further to the present, and since I'm the last speaker. Uh, I would say that, uh, how we write history is how, view the, how we view the other. How we write the European history, how people write, different people write European history, is today influenced by the age we live in and it, it will continue to be influenced <coughs> in the future. Um, how European history, how European histories will deal with this other, us versus the other, whether there will be borders, to what extent geography will come in as opposed to say shared principles and ideas, whether European Europe will be defined by geography and borders or by Ideas and principles, I think, will depend on the present and the future. History, history of Europe in the future, I submit, cannot be, will not be independent of where Europe is going, and that, of course, the history in turn will, to some degree, influence the future of Europe. But European history will be influenced by. uh, Europe presently and in the future. And I I would say again that at the moment um, Europe, there is a crisis, crisis economic, financial crisis but there is also a crisis of the idea of Europe, of the the European Union and that (coughs) has has an negative influence that influences negatively the use of history uh, and then the use of European history. You, my sense is that uh, too much is being made today of, uh, of history in a negative sense, history of exclusion of the other rather than making use of rather than emphasizing commonalities and the and the common vocabularies across history and uh, the, these identities are today once again being shaped uh, in terms of exclusion in terms of geographies and in terms of borders but We have taken a long view of history, we also know that things are bound to change and that uh, I am optimistic that Europe in the future will be talking more about the common histories and less about the borders in the definition of of, of, of Europe and European
0: history. Okay, thanks. Right now we have about 25 minutes where we can have questions from you. I'm, I'm pretty sure Donald will want to come back in defence of the historian at some point as well. <laughs> we've got uh we've got a couple at the front, and then I'll work my way back. So if we stop somebody, make sure you speak nice and loud because okay. you're facing the wrong way for the <laughs> people at the back. So you have to really. It's uh, open to the panel
3: actually. This question, but it's actually quote said that history is a constant interaction between the past, present and future. Um, On a superficial level that's obviously logical past, present, future function naturally. But on a deeper level I'm I'm quite worried by that idea because if we try and understand our future in relation to our present state, does that automatically presuppose how we're going to judge our past? Are we going to Change how we look to our past in order to sort of make our future foresight um, more more appealing to, let's say, Europe or to the EU. So I'm saying, at best, it's uh, pragmatic to do so. At worst, it's artificial. So I think I'm quite worried by that sort of analysis. What, what do you order? Thank
0: you. So interactions between dimensions of your site here as historians and others between your, the way you look at the future and really <coughs> mapping out how you're going to understand the past.
4: Can we go first Shepard? Oh you want you want me to go
3: ahead
4: and? yeah <laughs> oh. okay um well, I understand your concern if not your worry but it seems to me well, consider this historians are not people living in isolation from their societies their social environment and through the historian we look at the past the present and this has always been the case and uh, so in that in that sense again the I I was just passing by the bookstore um, and I looked at the window LSE bookstore and you will see there so many books about the idea of Europe mm. The idea of Europe. Right? Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think these pe- people are writing about the idea of Europe in isolation from what's happening today? No. People live, historians live in the present and find themes that preoccupy us and then reflect and interact with the past. So, in that sense, I expect this sort of interaction to continue and I don't find it as particularly worrisome. so.
0: Okay, uh, do we do the other two of you want to come in on that, please?
2: Just something incredibly briefly, which is, which is that, I mean, the good thing about emphasising the constitutive role of the future in histories is it makes people render that political presuppositions explicit. Yeah. And those who, who refuse to talk about the future constitution of
0: present view of history are
5: generally hiding that. Well, I, I try desperately <coughs> to hide uh, my view of the hoping that in
1: so doing I will disguise my presuppositions, um, which is one of the reasons why I've <coughs> chosen eventually to settle for history as opposed to social sciences, whose predictive. Um, ability of being so remarkable in the prediction of the collapse of communism, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, and the present global downturn Um, you know, three, probably the three most important events of uh, which have happened during uh, global events, which happened during my lifetime I, I think I would like to take to make one point we keep on talking about the historian sorry I feel increasingly uncomfortable and let me me tell you why. If we were to try to map out what is it, where is it that people get their historical knowledge, they will get it a lot from television, from fiction, from historical novels, from uh, films, um, from school history, from what people say in the streets, from what politicians say. Uh, if a politician wants to attack a country, they have to say, mm-hmm. he, the baddie, is like Hitler, right? Um, so you know, any historian who studied German and so on is completely apoplectic, saying, no, but look at the differences and so on, it makes no difference. <laughs> Nasser, Saddam Hussein, and so on, everybody is like him. So there's plenty of history about. In the good old days, in the myth that historians like about their own profession. Once upon a time, we were in charge of ruling ideology, and so we defined things. We wrote the history of the nation. Um, you know, the nation had just been invented, but we made sure that we trace its origin back to further away than the nation next to it. So, 1066, the <coughs> Poles <of> 966, <laughs> there, 100 years earlier, and on and on and on. And, you know, Georgia. I think in one of the ones I read is wonderful, it's 680 uh, before Christ. So that <laughs> gives in, you know, the Romans and the Greeks can go there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this was the role of the, of, the, of, the, of the historian. But now it's a profession. It's a specific job in universities where uh, in order to be promoted, you have to do certain things and not to do others. And so there are some things which are fashionable in, in history. One of the, uh, one of the present day <coughs> fashionable concepts is that of identity. And by the way, one other fashionable theme in uh, history is the, the other ofdumtrodden or which was not at all um, a theme regarded as worth studying fifty or sixty years ago. So it's a field that changes and changes because being now an academic field, not only it must defend itself. Uh, against uh, the dominant conceptions of history, which are no longer, probably they never were, but certainly they're not now in the hands of historians. <laughs> but at the same time, one must follow particular procedure to get jobs, promotions, and so on, I mean, a PhD. Someone wants to say, I want to do a PhD.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The world, you know, I'll say, right, but, you know, you, can you scale it down a bit, like, Hull you know, in the turn of the century? The, uh, and not <coughs> the, the, whole, the whole thing. So, on the whole, the um, the way in which one can discuss these things is to a- adopt a more sociological approach to the to what is history and what is the
0: task of the historian now. Okay. Right. We did it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take one there, then one there, and then come down here. So here. Uh, I I'd to
5: ask, how much do you go far for to claim European borders can uh, inherited Alexander Grey and uh, Caesar without paying order. To accept them as a heroes but without paying border.
2: Uh supposed Oswald. So okay. what, what was the first the first part of the question about was a relationship between how far did you give you an identity Yeah, because place?
5: you start from the Hegel 18, 19, beginning of the nineteenth century.
2: I started from Kant, but I was just that was my brief. I was just 30 to <laughs> 40 <laughs> 40 years. <That's laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, p- people who write the semantics of, you know, the historical concepts in European languages say that the Rosicrucian you know, being the main one identifies the simultaneous emergence of the concept of history in the collective singular in the last third of the 18th century. Semantically, it didn't. You can't find occurrences of the term prior to that. But, if historical semantics is more
0: updated. Okay, we'll carry up over there. Uh, how, how long do you think it will take for the Turkey
3: to join the Eurozone and be a member of that? Do you think that Turkey is already ready for
0: being a member of the Eurozone? Will Turkey be benefiting from the single
2: currency? Yeah. I think you should take this. You should take this. <laughs>
4: uh, Am I also expected to somehow relate that to European history? (laughs) 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 Do do you sit? (laughs) Well, uh, let me try to link this to the debate because because, uh, let me say this, that it's not anymore about whether I think the debate at the moment now, and the outcome will not depend on whether Turkey fulfills the criteria. It's whether Turkey becomes a member will also depend on what Europe thinks about Europe. Mm. What is this? What is this union? European Union. I think Turkey's membership would depend on what Europeans those inside the gates will think about the nature of this entity. Well, can I ask you
1: a question? <laughs> on, 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 yeah. on Turkey. I mean, imagine a different scenario. Not so, How many people in Turkey? 80 million now? Oh, what's the...
0: 73 million. Um, uh, when, when it I comes I to population, I course.
3: Well, one hundred and twenty. So. <laughs> so <put> <laughs> super I, I,
0: I accept your figure of seventy-three, which says a really yeah. good. electricity.
1: Um, if Turkey, uh, with seventy-three million people, um, was a very <coughs> rich, industrial country with a thriving financial sector, etc., etc., would anyone say? Are you really European or not? <laughs> or we would all say, please, come in, we beg <laughs> yeah. you. Know, you know, in, a, in a sense, that the, that the boundaries is not Europe, but what kind of country are you? If it is right. poorer than the average, too many right. farmers, etc., Muslims. <laughs>
4: Even 10 million Muslims, it Mm. could be a member. And Switzerland.
1: And he likes
4: Switzerland. Yeah. away in any way, still in some areas quite far away from the, let's say the Copenhagen criteria. Okay, has to go that way towards fulfilling that criteria. But sometimes uh, in the debates in Europe you wonder whether fulfilling the criteria is enough. In fact, European politicians say that, some European politicians, some European but not the Commission. The Commission never said. But some European politicians say, even if Turkey fulfills the criteria, it should not become a member. So they are on, rec- on the record for saying that. So, in other words, even if they become a prosperous country, that, then they invoke geography, borders, to say, well, Europe is not. Yeah, Turkey is not part of Europe. It should not become a member. But the same people have already also formally <coughs> accepted Turkey as a candidate.
0: Yeah, okay, I was front here and then we'll move up to the back.
4: Yeah, just just following on that point,
6: obviously Turkey, if it did come in, would be the second largest country in the EU. And um, I think it also associated with this. Politicians are always being accused of knowing no your history. And I think very much if you look at Merkel and Sarkozy being respond. This big debate going on in Germany, which Merkel was ignited, on multiculturalism versus integration. And similarly with Sarkozy and his attitude to the immigration communities. I mean, a secular state banning the burqa. Well, We'd think a secular state would actually like to admit a secular, secular state so it didn't become more Muslim. And I think it also goes back to the whole issue and, uh, of the EU. In the early 90s, it was widening versus deepening. And uh, now we've had widening and shallowing and diluted, basically. And it was interesting when Robert Cooper was. Here recently and talking about the about relations between Europe and Russia. And Russia wouldn't stand the admission of Ukraine to NATO. He said Russia's not at all bothered about Ukraine joining the EU because it regards the EU as so chaotic and fragmented, with its own Council of the Regions, I mean, you know, whatever, that actually it sees it as no threat. NATO would see as a threat, but the European Union not. And and I think the final point but I won't go on. No. But, but just the, the politicians, I think, are being banal. But I think it's also the, the way that Europe's looking in on itself, the loss of empire, and also also because it's huddling together because the economic uh, yes. centre of gravity is moving. <coughs> that's not a
0: question, but that's a it. T- it's
6: it's. T- t- I like their comments on <laughs> it because I mean, it, you know, just I mean, I'm obviously putting things forward, but I think they're important points. Yeah, right? no, no, no. Well, well,
4: I, I agree.
3: agree. <laughs> 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 so,
4: we are
1: witnessing uh, a uh, paradox. If uh, you were an anti-European who yeah. somehow has accepted that the EU is not going to disappear yeah, yeah. but your objective is let's have the EU as a minimalist EU yeah, that is, exactly. let's just have the, the free trade stuff but you know nothing else. Then if I were one of these and people, many people in the Conservative Party are... Like like that, uh, then I would say I want the Ukraine to join. I want Turkey to join, and so on. Because clearly, the more countries join, particularly countries who <coughs> exhibit uh, an, on a number of criteria strong dissimilarities, yes. then it would make it far more complicated to move beyond uh, yeah. the, uh, the the thing. So the anti-European and an expansion. Uh, whereas, if one were a real uh, they don't say it because they're embarrassed and slightly ashamed, but one should say no, it was a mistake to have a 27 countries. it was a mistake to have Romania, Bulgaria, and so on, we should have solidified the 15, caught um, Norway and Switzerland because they're only rich countries but still, you know, outside, uh, and put a barrier there and then later, one day. Um, you know, but th- that's, the, that's the strange situation. Now, oh, Mrs. Thatcher, um, to give her credit for intelligence, because she, she was remarkable, especially compared to her um <laughs> was in favour of expanding the European Union because she knew perfectly
0: well that, of course, it would cause soon it would cause stagnation. I, I, li- I like the thought of the widening and shallowing. I mm. think we should put this to the it's European Union <laughs> as their future agenda. Are you a shallow European? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah,
5: go divided Europe into the borders. Uh, firstly excluded uh, all external uh, values such as Islamic values and communist principles. And then internally uh, socially constructed the idea of the nation and nationalism and through the uh, saying that we are uh, we are and them, or us and them, and then created the idea of the nation. Uh, I'm those borders which already has been drawn by Europeans and also like uh, who for example uh, I'm coming to that yeah, uh, do you think how actually European and European countries are dealing or included the other identity which is periphery or radical identity such as immigration ethnic minorities ethnic religious uh, Id- uh, identity uh, different sexuality and so on uh, in that case, how actually uh, the, the what we call Western values, uh, neoliberal democracy or globalization idea and so on, how actually those uh, included these ideas? <coughs> Does it work for Europe anymore? Uh, and as I think if I'm not wrong, Zizek, uh, says, if the globalization is collapsed, how Europe actually face it? if, sorry, your last statement, if the globalisation, the idea of the, the notion of the globalisation, which is the neoliberalism and and neo-capitalism, <coughs> and capitalism, the idea of the capitalism is collapsed, how European, actually, or Europe going to face with this? Well, you're the economist. So. <laughs> <laughs> <percent> the question <laughs>
3: is about Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, you take it then.
2: I don't think globalization. I'm not quite sure what you mean by globalization, but actually, I I don't think the increasing monetary extension of the single market is collapsing. I think it's continuing. So, yeah.
4: But let me just add one thing. Yes, there is something (coughs) inherent in the European Union project about economic growth, prosperity. Yes. Economic growth, economic prosperity is obviously driving this project. That that this union becomes much more difficult to sustain in bad times, especially enlargement becomes much more difficult in bad times. Perhaps that's stating the obvious. Okay. Yeah. At the back. Right.
5: So at the start of the evening, we we heard about the instability of Europe or the surprising that, in emphasizing that, you've ignored the stabilization of Europe that's happened since the Second World War, and the strong positive attitude that many people in Europe have towards the fact that the European community has had an instrumental role in stabilizing Europe. So wouldn't it would be a good piece of advice to those who want Turkey to join the EU to be to focus on stabilization? That's a good question. Economic,
4: social, etc. <laughs> Donald, is it is an
0: interesting fact. I mean you were talking about the sort of the, uh, the newness of Europe uh, and as a space of nation states in mm. conflict and so on. And of course, it's often thought to be the great achievement of the post war European settlement that it is a place of relative stability. Okay. Um, well, uh, that's a bit
1: surprising. Only if we have an narrow view of Europe mm. can we say it's a place of great um, quite a few of my new states um, actually are 20 years old They reappeared resurfaced they would claim but anyway mm. they, they are the result of uh, one extremely unstable event Europe emerges out of 1945 as a divided continent and I know that people who um, were the architects <coughs> of the European Union when they said Europe they really meant West Union, they never, never, never thought about Eastern Europe. Um, that was their uh, Europe. This is what has collapsed in the last 20 years. I don't see at all any stability. I'm very glad, by the way, that the European Union exists. I'm very glad it enlarged, etc. But this does not change at all the, the, the effect of, of, of this extraordinary dimension. Not only... Eastern Europe, uh, uh, or rather the Soviet Empire, has collapsed. Uh, but even one country, which had been there since after the First World War, Yugoslavia, has collapsed in about every single bit of the system. <coughs> the you had what? Kans, seven states yeah. out of one, uh, and all in the last one, Kosovo, two years ago. Um, you know, so I I, uh, I dispute completely the fact that this is a continent of stability, look at Africa instead.